We are going to be in uh, several different places in Scripture this morning, but Isaiah 53 will be kind of our main focus. If you haven't been here for the last couple of weeks, we started a new sermon series called Image is Everything. And the, the main theme that we are discussing is how we as people are created in God's image, and as his image bearers, we, uh, that shapes who we are, that shapes how we understand ourselves and, and how we view ourselves and who we are. And so we'll be talking over these coming weeks about different issues or aspects or things in our lives that also try to shape our identity and how God's image, being made in God's image, also helps form that. And so this morning uh, we're going to talk about t- the topic of trauma and um, I realize for, for some of you this this could be very sensitive, and so I want to be very careful with our words, but also be very intentional with how Scripture speaks into our hurt and our pain and our suffering. So look with me in Isaiah 53. Does anyone have the page number in the church Bible for that, in case anyone's still looking? 356. 356. And we are going to read Isaiah 53, uh, verses 2 through 12. Please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Isaiah 53, chapter, chapter 53, verse 2. For he grew up like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed." All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off? Cut out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. And although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring and be and will shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. He poured out his soul to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and he makes intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. A few weeks ago, the Chicago Tribune ran an article 
about the psychological effects of um, the trauma of gun violence on youth in our city. And the point that they were trying to make is that even after physical wounds have healed, the psychological and emotional effects continue on and drastically affect people's lives. And so at one point they were trying to show how, just help the reader understand how pervasive trauma can be in some of our communities. And they, the author said that just living somewhere rife with violence can change the biological structure of a child's brain, leaving victims prone to depression, anxiety, and aggressive behavior. And to kind of demonstrate this, they gave the story of one young man who had recently been shot and miraculously survived and began to heal. And although he, he healed outwardly, he, he was struggling mightily with his emotions, with anxiety, replaying the event in his head. He dropped out of school, and he was really suffering. And they, and they gave his story to show just what it looks like a little bit. But there is kind of an irony to that because this young man unknown to the author of this article probably, long before he was a victim of gun violence and that trauma, had also been abused in his home growing up. And we know that because uh, at one point in the past he was around our church. And so the author probably didn't even know that, but the, the irony is the article is trying to show how pervasive and prevalent trauma is in many of the people in our city, and yet it didn't even recognize one of the sources of the story they were using for this young man. The point is, is that trauma is a pain that is much more prevalent and pervasive than we would often ever realize, even if you have been traumatized. And so I bring this subject up because trauma and the pain that we experience and the suffering done to us tries to shape who we are and who we see ourselves. It tries to shape our identity. And so, it, and so it's important to discuss this as we talk about what it means to be an image bearer. And the main point that I want you to understand, the main thing I want you to see from the passages that we look at, is this, that your trauma damages the image of God in you, but the trauma of the cross promises healing and restoration of God's image in you. Your trauma damages the image of God that you are made in, but the trauma of the cross promises healing and restoration. And so to recap, we, we've said the last two weeks from Genesis 1, 27 and 28, that we are made in God's image. God created them male and female. In the image of God, he created people. And that means that you, person, you, whoever you are, Whatever the circumstances that brought you about into this world, wherever you're from, whatever you're doing right now, whatever mistakes you've made, whatever you've experienced, you are an image bearer of God's image. Amen. You, that means, have purpose. You Amen. have value. You have dignity that is innate to who you are because you are God's creation and in his image he made you. My um, favorite poet and spoken word artist says that you are heaven's handmade calligraphy. That means you are the beautiful, artistic, uh, handwritten creation of God himself. And last week we talked about how sin, our rebellion and our replacement of God distorts the image of God. 
And it, and it distorts and dishonors his image in us and in each other. Amen. And yet we do not lose it. We still bear it. We still have it. We do not lose our dignity and our value and our worth as part of God's creation. Just because we have sinned, although it drastically shapes and distorts and affects it, it needs to be made right. Now, sin has an individual nature to it. Is our, our sin against God, right? But sin also has other aspects to it. It also has a societal or a communal aspect. There's a pastor uh, in Brooklyn named A.R. Bernard who says that, the, that sin, starting with personal choices, the personal choices that people make therefore impact society as a whole. And so if the personal choices that everyone makes are, are ruined by sin, that forms what he says a condition. It's not just our actions. There is a condition of sin, and that shapes our society, our community. And so we are not only the, the um, guilty party of sin, but we are at the same time can be victims of sin too. Other people's sin can harm and hurt us as well. And that is where trauma can come from. The harmful and sinful things done will damage your dignity. And they will try to rob you of your value and your worth as God's image bearer. That is the societal, the communal nature of sin. And your trauma, the trauma you experience, damages that dignity you have as God's image bearer. Trauma is a, um, it's a simple definition for a very complex problem. It is a deeply distressing or disturbing experience. And it's the lasting effects that, that happen maybe after that. So trauma can result from a very sudden occurrence, like an accident or an attack or a, a very sudden loss of somebody close to you. I'll never forget the day I showed up on my best friend's front door um, when he, he discovered that day that his uh, daughter, who was his wife was five months pregnant with, was not going to be born alive. And it was just a cold and bitter weeping from the trauma of that event as I... Uh, held him, and I'll never forget that. And trauma can also occur, though, from a, a chronic or a repeated exposure to harm. So the, in an environment that you are from, or that you are in, can be traumatic because it, it continuously exposes you to harm or pain. So research on uh, especially youth in communities that experience higher amounts of violence has found that Exposure to street violence has been shown to cause distress symptoms, they're Amen. called, or, or post-traumatic stress-related symptoms in children just from hearing about violence. Not even from witnessing it, not even from uh, being a victim of it. That itself has that effect, but just hearing about it can increase distress symptoms, right? So the environment that you are from can be toxic in that it creates a traumatizing experience. The the chronic stress of poverty can result in trauma because you always have to think just about survival and what's next. And it doesn't allow you to think long term. And that repeated difficulty can be a traumatic experience, that suffering. And those of us who come from more privileged backgrounds are not immune to the, the chronic and complex causes of trauma. Some of the most common sources, traumatizing experiences, happen almost everywhere. They are neglect or abuse of children. They are domestic abuse between intimate partners. They are sexual abuse 
And the, the statistics are, are staggering. The Center for Disease Control says that one out of every five women and one in every 71 men has been raped in their life. It's staggering. One in every four women has been the victim of physical abuse from an intimate partner. There aren't even hardly numbers on children who are neglected or abused growing up because they're so, it goes so unreported. And so when we understand that all of these things, whether it's a one-time sudden tragic event in your life or maybe just the long-term exposure or, or toxic environment that you have been around can cause trauma, then we realize it's much more common than we think. And you might have experienced these things, and you might be carrying the weight of suffering and trauma because of it. To you, violence is normal. To you, fear is your default setting. To you, knowledge of sex came far too early and without your consent. To you, neglect or abandonment might be all you know, and betrayal might come from the people closest to you. To you, abuse feels like some kind of payment you need to make in order to be loved. To you, death is sudden and always lurking. To you, pain is heavy, and it weighs on you, and it goes, and, and trauma is an attack on your identity in that it aims for the very core of who you are. It aims right for the deepest part of your heart, Diane Langberg is a psychologist, a Christian psychologist who's well-respected um, both in Christian fields and also in um, secular medicine because she's worked extensively with victims of sex trafficking around the globe. And she says this, trauma occurs when suffering overwhelms normal human coping. So those who are victims of such things as rape or domestic abuse, child abuse, trafficking, the violence of our inner cities, war, are often traumatized humans, and they live with reoccurring memories of atrocities that they have witnessed or endured. And the memories infect their sleep, destroy their relationships, destroy their capacity to work, torment their emotions, shatter their faith, and mutilate their hope. The wounds, she says, the wounds of trauma are not visible, but their effects are visible. Trauma attacks the image of God in you, and it manifests itself in feelings of worthlessness. It causes deep shame and self-hatred. It makes you believe that the harm that's been done to you is somehow your fault. It convinces you that your life doesn't matter. And it often weighs on you in ways you can't even express because the pain is so heavy. It affects us psychologically and emotionally. It even can affect us physically. And studies have found that women who are abused in their youth are much more likely to develop autoimmune diseases. Mm -hmm. So we can, this, this psychological and emotional pain can also manifest itself even physically because it is, uh, after all this, a spiritual problem. It is an, an issue of our identity and who we are, and it comes and it shapes how you view yourself and who you understand yourself to be. And there's two common responses that people often have towards trauma. One is an internal response, and it's coping with destructive behaviors. Right? So oftentimes, people who, are, who have been traumatized form codependent relationships with people who are unhealthy or hurtful to them because it, it's some sort of um, 
intimacy, right? People form unhealthy or reckless sexual relationships because they offer a taste of acceptance, the numbing effect of pornography or the euphoria of substances or the forgetfulness of alcohol. All these things people can turn to because they carry a weight and a pain that is deep. And these things feel like they take away the pain. Amen. Just a little bit. But they are destructive and they form a cycle too often. The other response people have can be external. Maybe you've heard the saying, hurt people, hurt people. And, and studies have shown that, that most people who commit abuse or violence have at some point experienced it themselves. It doesn't mean that everyone who's been hurt will do that. But we see in a condition of sin where we, we are affected by it, that oftentimes trauma repeats itself in people's lives. And so studies on gun violence in Chicago have shown that the people most likely to become perpetrators are people who have themselves been wounded or shot at, Amen. right? There is a uh, Christian professor at a college and called the King's College who, who works to bring awareness of mass incarceration and a Christian response, and he's quick to point out that 78% of people in the criminal justice system were at some point in their lives abused or neglected. So you can see how an external response to trauma is so often it gets repeated and it becomes a cycle. And the point, the point that I want to make to you, especially if you know what this is like, is that God knows your trauma. Amen. God knows your trauma. See, Scripture, the story of the Bible, tells this grand story of God's redemption of a broken humanity. And, and what tells that, that grand story is many stories from many people, many places that come together and they fit together and they shape this grand story of God's redemption. But many of those stories... Many of those stories that, that form in Scripture are stories of people who have been traumatized. They are stories like yours. And it's, the point for them being in the Bible is because if God is going to redeem a broken humanity, then he has to know how broken it is. Hallelujah. If God is going to heal hurting people, he has to know how bad the hurt is. And so I want to look at several pieces of Scripture and you can turn to them if you want, I, for the sake of time and for the sake of just the familiarity they might have. I'm going to summarize them for the most part. But I encourage you, if you don't know these stories, to spend time in them and, and ask, why would God include this in the story, in his word? Because they shape so much of who we are and they look a lot like us. And so in Genesis chapter 37, Joseph is taken by his own brothers who are jealous of him and thrown into a pit to die. Then they change their mind, they pull him out, and they sell him into slavery. Now maybe you know the rest of that story, but Joseph is, is one who experiences family betrayal. Betrayal and manipulation of those closest to him. Judges chapter 19 for th through 21 is one of the most gruesome stories in the Bible, and it shows how terrible the condition of sin is when God is forsaken by his people. And it, it, it's a story of a woman who is a concubine, meaning she's attached to a man, but she doesn't have all the, the benefits of being married, mm -hmm. is given out to a group of violent men 
sort of as a way for, for the man she belongs to to escape himself. And Judges 19.22 says that they knew her and they abused her all night until morning. And as a result of this attack, she dies. It's a gruesome story. And it gets worse because the, the, the men who did this were from a tribe called Benjamin, part of Israel. And when the rest of Israel finds out about this, they are livid and they come together. And they come together against their, uh, uh, Benjamin, their own, another tribe in their own country, and a sort of civil war breaks out. And in their revenge against the, Benjamite, the Benjaminites, they kill almost everybody in that whole tribe. Until they stop, and there is 600 men left, and that's it. And so here you see the cycle of violence turning, and then they say, well, this is not good, because uh, this tribe, one of our own people, our own tribe is going to die off unless we find wives for these men. And so they devise this plan to go against another city, to kill all the inhabitants of that city except the young women, take them and force them to be the wives of the Benjamites. And then it's not enough. It's not enough people. And so they resolve to literally hiding out in another city of their own country and stealing young women when they come out as a part of this festival to, to give them as wives to this tribe that was destroyed because of a, a gruesome civil war that was initiated by a terrible act of depraved violence. It's a brutal story of sexual violence and the cycle of trauma. And in the midst of that, that setting, there's another story in the Bible, the book of Ruth, which is actually a beautiful story of God's redemption. But it begins with a woman named Naomi who is forced to leave her home with her husband and her sons because there's a famine in the land. And as they leave and, and they go out and they have to leave their home as, as, as uh, exiles or refugees in a sense, her husband dies and shortly after so do her two sons. Mm -hmm. And she's left with, with, without her husband, without her own children. And her grief from losing people close to her is so strong that when she returns back to her home, and they say, Naomi's here. That's Naomi. And she says, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Mara means bitter. She literally, her grief and her pain and her trauma was so great that she wanted to change her name. Because she felt like it defined her. She says, call me Mara for the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. Her grief, her trauma, it shapes her identity. In 1 Samuel chapter 20, King Saul is so enraged with jealousy towards David, who's supposed to replace him as the king, and Saul's son, Jonathan, his own son, Jonathan, David's best friend, goes before his dad to try and plead with him not to attack David. And Jonathan's father picks up a spear and throws it at him. His own father tries to kill him. This is, Jonathan is, is a, a picture of an abusive father. In 2 Samuel, just a few pages later, one of King David's own daughters named Tamar is deceived, taken advantage of, and violated by her own brother. And after that happens, that man becomes very angry and bitter with her. Her dignity is taken and great shame is placed upon her. You probably know the story of Job. 
where in, in act uh, to test his faith, Satan causes great tragedy to come upon him. And in one day, he loses all of his children when a building collapses in on it. And this was not something that Job uh, and Job handled it about as you would expect someone to handle it. He was in anguish. And in Job chapter 10, he says, I loathe, I hate my life. Mm-hmm. He says, in the bitterness of my soul, I will speak. And a few verses later, he says to God, why did you bring me out of the womb? Oh, would that I had died before any eye had seen me, before I had been carried from the womb to the grave. These are words of deep grief and pain from his mm-hmm. loss. He says, I wish that I would have just died right when I was born so that I wouldn't have to go through this misery. Jeremiah said something similar. Jeremiah is often called the weeping prophet. God sent him to the people of Israel to warn them of of the coming judgment of God, and they didn't listen. And so God brought the nations against uh, Jeremiah's people in judgment and he he witnessed this violence he saw this happen he just he saw things unravel his his home get taken from him his people killed and carried away he was exposed to great violence and he says something similar to job he says in chapter 20 verse 18 why did i come out of the womb to see toil and sorrow and spend my days in shame why was i born just to see how violent the world is and god tells these stories because this is a world without him. This is a world marked by the condition of sin. And these stories are your stories. Many of you, you see yourselves in these experiences and these stories. You've gone through similar things. You've felt similar emotions. You've said similar words. And God Tells these stories because God knows your trauma. Amen. He is not indifferent to it. He sees it. But not only is God not indifferent to your trauma, not only does God know and see what you are suffering and experiencing, God also experiences it himself. And this is where we can look at Isaiah 53. And you can go to the next slide. Right on there. And Isaiah 53 is a prophecy from the prophet Isaiah of um, one who God calls his servant. And he says his, his servant through these chapters is someone who will come about and bring God's judgment, but God's salvation as well. And as a servant, we know from being on the other side of the cross is a prophecy of the coming of Christ. It tells of who Christ will be, who Christ to us has been. And so this passage is often referred to as the suffering servant because here we see exactly the pain that Christ carries and the pain that God in Christ as a man like us suffers. And so I want to tell you four things, four truths about God's suffering in Christ, about the suffering Christ endures. Number one, Jesus didn't avoid trauma. He embraced it. In verse 3, of Isaiah 53, it says he was despised and rejected. Jesus entered into a place knowing he would be neglected, knowing he would be betrayed, knowing people would use him just for a means to their own end. And he still came and experienced that like many of you have. Verse 7 says he did not open his mouth. He didn't defend himself. He doesn't raise an objection. He embraced the suffering that he would experience. 
The second thing, for Jesus, trauma was the norm. And so for many of you, you might think this is all I know. All I know is betrayal and pain and suffering. All I know is loss. All I know is one thing after the other. And it might feel like your trauma and your suffering is what's normal to you. And that, for Jesus, was very similar. Look at verse 3 again. He's given a name. Man of sorrows. Or man of pains. And just how Naomi wanted to change her name to reflect the pain that she'd endured. So Jesus is given a name like that as well. Man of sorrows. What a name the song says, right? The next line says he was acquainted with grief. And loss, pain, wasn't, wasn't something that he just went through every now and then. It says he was acquainted with it. It was familiar to him. He knew it. It wasn't every now and then. It was his norm. Jesus. Your grief is not a foreign concept to God. Third thing, Jesus suffered violence and death. And so verse 5 is the language of the crucifixion, that he was pierced for our transgression, crushed for our iniquities. Verse 8 says he was cut off from the land of the living, and there was a grave that was fixed for him. So his suffering was so severe, it was the most severe. It cost him his whole life. Amen. It was violent, it was brutal, and it resulted in his death. That was his trauma, the trauma God in Christ experiences. And the last thing is that Jesus suffered so that you could find healing. Hallelujah. Verse 4 says, Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. Your grief, your sorrows, your pain, Jesus carried. In Christ, God suffers like us. He suffers with us. If you're suffering and you don't think that God knows or sees, He does. But God also in Christ suffers for us. With us, like us, but also for us. Your trauma, your pain is the result of the condition of sin. The trauma of the cross that Christ experienced is what brings about healing. What yours never could, his brings about. It was for you. Verse 5, um, or sorry, verse 11 says that out of this he makes many righteous. He makes many to be accounted righteous and he bears their iniquities. The, the punishment for sin, the payment for sin, both in our individual hearts and the way that we have sinned against God and also in the effects that we feel Jesus carried on himself. That he paid. That he took upon himself. And verse 6 says, Even though we have turned astray, the Lord has laid on him our iniquity, the iniquity of us all. And that means that the, suffer, or the, the, the sin of your heart individually has been laid on Christ. And so has the sin societally, communally. He has also carried that, also suffered that. And as verse 5 says, upon him was the chastisement, the punishment, the payment for sin that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Hallelujah. By the wounds, by the trauma of God in Christ. 
to not only know your pain, know your sorrows, know your grief, he also brings us healing, peace. By those wounds we are healed. Thank you, Jesus. Christ doesn't avoid trauma, he embraces it. For him it was the norm. Hallelujah. His trauma was severe, it was violent, it resulted in his death, and he did it like you, you and for you, or like you and with you, but also for you. When I was working as, um, I, I was doing an internship at a church in, in my, that I went to in college, and I was working with the youth group, the youth ministry, and um, there was one girl in high school, in our high school group, and um, she was, it was, it was plain to see from the interactions with the other kids that she was kind of the outcast, or that they didn't really include her, and that was probably what her life looked like at school, too. I knew a little bit of her story, not much, but I knew that she had probably seen and been exposed to things in her life that her classmates probably didn't even know what it was. Her, she, she in, a, in a middle class family setting, was the, one of the few students whose um, family wasn't together, and so she just born that, and she would talk about, um, at times, confess her struggle with cutting herself. Mm. And I, I struggled to know what to say, because I just, I didn't understand it. I didn't understand if, you know, I, I could see you're in some kind of pain, but why are you, why are you giving yourself more pain? I couldn't quite figure it out, and so I'd try and say, you know, well, you know, like, God loves you, and, 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 and that you know, won't help you, and that, I didn't know what else to say. And then I heard a, a story of a, a pastor sharing about um, his same experience. He, he also didn't understand that. And so he, uh, it wasn't until he was preaching in a prison, and afterwards one of the inmates came to him and said, that encouraged me and strengthened me. You know, I'm, I'm a Christian. God saved me. Christ saved me. And, and he lifted up his, his, his sleeve, and he had scars on his arms, and he said, I used to just... I used to cut myself before I understood who Christ was. And in that moment, it clicked for this pastor. And as he shared it, in that moment, it kind of clicked for me too. It was an external wound to try and heal internal pain. Mm -hmm. Really, it's not that far off from what's needed, except it is a distortion. Yes. And it doesn't bring about that healing. But what that is is a cry for Christ. To see and know that Christ has experienced that wound externally for us. And that doing so, he bears the punishment of our sin, brings us forgiveness, and also brings us healing from the wounds that we have on our hearts. Christ restores the image of God in you. He restores you through your faith in him to who God created you to be. He removes the distortion of our sin. He returns to you your value, your dignity. As God's image bearer. Thank you, Jesus. And so I have just two final applications. What this means. What we can take from this. The first is that your trauma is not your destiny. Your pain is not your final fate. And I know that, that many of you in, in, our, in our church body have shared have shared your stories of suffering and, and, and amazing stories of healing too as well. And I know also that some of you still, you've been walking with Christ and you still just carry the effects of things that have happened to you. And I wish so bad I could just tell you a prayer to pray and it would go away. I wish so bad that I could just 
tell you if you have your faith this way or do this, that, that it would be gone, that you could get on with your life that you were meant to live. I wish so bad. And, that's, and yet we know that, that for many can be the experience that Christ does heal. And he begins that process when we come to know him. But I also know that, that in, in a world marked by the condition of sin, sometimes you will carry that and you keep carrying and you keep struggling through that. But I believe that that won't be all you know. I believe that won't be the end of your story. That that's not your destiny. That's not your fate. And so you can turn with me to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation was written by the Apostle John. John also wrote the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John tells John's experience with Jesus on earth. The Son of God incarnated as a man to teach, to correct, to rebuke, to heal, and ultimately to die and rise again. And so the story tells, the, the, his story and his gospel tells Christ's life as a person, as a man. But in Revelation, John now has a vision. He's given a vision by God of, of the, the final picture, a part of the story. God's final judgment and God's final salvation of people. And, and, and so he has this vision and he records it down. And in Revelation chapter 5, he sees that there's these big seals, these big scrolls that are sealed. And they need to be broken and opened up. They need to be opened up so that God will bring about the final chapter of his story. So that he'll bring about his final healing and salvation. And John sees and he says in verse 5 or verse 4 that no one was able to, to open it. And he says he weeps loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and look into it. But then he sees, it says in, in chapter 5, or verse 5, one of the, the elders in heaven says to him, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the other four living creatures, I saw among the elders a lamb. Standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are seven spirits sent out from God to all the earth. And he took this, went and took the scroll from the right hand of him seated on the throne. And eventually he opens this. Now the Lamb is the Son of God. It is Jesus. But notice how he looks different, right? Like when he in the Gospel of John, he he, he picture a person because Jesus came as a man. But Jesus existed always from the beginning. Hallelujah. Right? So, so even though he came as a man and looked as a man, he existed before that. And after he ascended, he exists after that. And so his appearance here in heaven looks much different than how John knew him as a man. Right? He says he looks like a lamb. He has these horns and these eyes. We don't really picture it. But it's, it's Jesus in a glorious state. Right? Like a, like a, a reigning and, and glorious state. But John recognizes something about him. Did you catch it in verse 6? I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. This is Jesus. Even after he ascends to heaven and when he returns in his glorious and kingly state, he still bears the scars of his trauma. And John recognizes that. And he sees that. And Jesus comes, and he's the one worthy to open the scroll. He's the one worthy to bring about the final chapter. And so it says later in, in verse 13 in that same chapter, I heard every creature 
Every creature, like we sang earlier, in heaven and earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying, to him who sits on the throne, to the Lamb, be a blessing and honor and glory and might forever. And then all of those in heaven fall down and worship this Lamb who is coming, who is risen, who is reigning, and yet who was slain, who bears the marks, the wounds for us. And that is why I know that whatever you have experienced, whatever you have suffered, whatever you are carrying now that people don't even know, whatever you have gone through and however long you will battle it, it will not be all that you know. Because the story has an end and God has written the end and you belong to him because Christ is your lamb and he was slain for you. He suffered like you. With you, but for you. And that is where the final promise of healing is laid. Because your healing will be eternal. Your wounds and your trauma will not be forever. But your healing will be eternal. Because Christ reigns forever. And if you know him as your savior. If your faith is in him. Then your faith in him will be greater than The pain that makes it feel like it's your fate. That is all that you know. You belong to the wounded Lamb of God who is now reigning and the one that all of creation will praise. So trauma is not your destiny and your pain is not your final fate. The second point I want to make for what does this mean is that trauma is the burden of the church. So there's many of us here who just haven't experienced suffering like some of the rest of you have. We haven't gone through it. We haven't seen it. We don't know what it's like to endure or witness some of these things. We have pain, but just not the same as the point of many of you who have been traumatized have. And yet, there is a clear calling for us to bear this burden with those who have been traumatized, right? It's still the burden of the church to enter into people's pain, to embrace those whose dignity has been damaged. To be people of hope for people who are hopeless. To, as um, Paul says in Romans 12, weep with those who weep. And as he says in Galatians 6, bear each other's burdens. This is the picture of the people of God. And we're called to be like our Savior. Who left his place of comfort and came and entered into the suffering and broken and traumatized world. It is much easier for us to avoid. It's much easier for us to not try and love the hurting and the traumatized. It's easier for Jesus too. Under no obligation to us, nothing he owed us to stay on his throne. To let us suffer in the misery that we've created here in our world marked by sin's condition and yet he didn't yet he entered in and so we too are called to enter in to be a safe place that loves hurting people to protect the abused it's messy and it's easier to stay away but our calling is to enter in so may we living hope be a place that loves cares for those who are hurting. May we stay with them. May those of you who have experienced healing, let your story be a testimony to those who are hurting in our community. They will see Christ's love and healing in your life. And may those of us who haven't experienced that still stand 
with them still. Display who Christ is because we belong to him. He was slain for us. Amen. Carried our punishment for our sin that each of us had on us. And that is who he is. I want to close with just a final quote from the psychologist Diane Langberg who I quoted earlier. She says this, The church of Jesus Christ is called to bring light into dark places and to love damaged souls and to bear the truth about who our God is. He entered in so that we might know him and be like him. May people know who God is and may people be like him as a result of who we are. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you this morning for your goodness and your love to us. We are so reminded of sin and the condition that it is and, and the hurt that we have, the hurt that we have caused. And Lord, we need the Savior and you have given yourself to us in Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would change us and shape us. Lord, I pray for those who are hurting this morning who bear deep wounds of suffering they have endured, that they would know your healing, that their faith in you would begin a process of change and growth, that you would free them from those burdens, and that ultimately, even as they struggle in that, that they would see their hope that lies in the end of the story that you have written, and it lies with the risen, reigning King Jesus, who still bears the wounds that he suffered for us. Lord, may you make this known in the lives of the hurting. May you break our hearts for those of us who don't quite know this. And may we love as you have loved us. May we see the depths of our sin and our depravity and see your great love to save us. And may that be what drives us and compels us to stay. To stay where people are, are hurting, to share our stories of healing, to love the people in our church and in our community. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.